Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Earth, fire, wind, water, heart, go planet. Oh, I thought the- you were going to make an earth, wind, and fire reference, but then you changed course midway <laughs> and I was on board again. Not that I'm not on board with Earth, Wind, and Fire. They slap, but I love me some Captain Planet. Right, right. This will be familiar to uh, many, many of our fellow listeners who are based in the U.S. Captain Planet was an animated series about these kids, these plucky young upstarts who wanted to save the world with the help of their super-powered friend, Captain Planet, the eponymous star of the show. Uh, Captain Planet's going to come up a couple times in today's episode. Uh, The topic of our show today has been on our minds for a while because the facts are in. Regardless of where you live, your country has probably at some point been ground zero for a serious environmental disaster. Oil spills, hurricanes, mass extinctions, forest fires, flooding, droughts, you name it. 
something has happened. And right now, at the time of this recording, people across the planet have tried to propose any number of solutions to these problems. And unfortunately, very few of these initiatives have met with great success, and the world continues to degrade at an unprecedented pace. Bummer. Yeah, bummer indeed. I mean, you know, for some people, maybe in the crowd today, this means that drastic new tactics are needed. If you can't change the system from within the system, then the system itself becomes your enemy. So certain groups have decided to conspire to act outside of the law in service of what they see as a greater environmental good. And some folks will call these people heroes. Other folks, as we'll find, will call them terrorists. Here are the facts. When Before we talk about the concept of so-called eco-terrorism, we have to lay out some, some depressing information. Uh, the kind of thing that has made me actively subscribe to the philosophy of optimistic nihilism. It uh, <laughs> doesn't matter who you vote for. doesn't matter what kind of music you like, what kind of food you eat, or what kind of clothes you wear. The environment is screwed. I mean, for all, for all intents and purposes. And you don't have to be like a super uh, activist in this space, you know, some kind of hippie living in a treehouse to agree with that point. I mean, it's pretty clear um, that there are some very, very, very serious and, and in many cases irreversible problems with the environment. Well, yeah, we, we learned we did an episode not long ago. Maybe actually it was years ago now. But it was about specifically <laughs> that, what the oil companies knew when it came to climate change and the effects that their companies were having on that whole process. I mean, it's it's pretty much a, an accepted fact that humans have at least pushed forward the changing climate on Earth. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the arguments attempting to debunk studies about that were paid by the corporations who mm -hmm. were at least partially responsible. They knew, they very much knew, and they just decided their Q4 profits were, you know, more important than their grandchildren or the people who come after the current generation. Man-made climate change is accepted as a fact. Uh, the conspiracy is that people tried to cover it up. So today, the real debates are, the real like active debates in this sphere are the extent of the damage, like you're alluding to, Matt, like humans did something, how much did they do? And then secondly, what is to be done about this? And when do uh, humans need to get off their collective keisters and do something? I mean, you have, you know, international agreements and climate accords and, you know, um, emission standards and things like that. But you're right. Even stuff like that is super politicized and often, you know, a little bit toothless in terms of like how much accountability the nations that are part of those agreements actually have. Mm -hmm. And we're not you know, this is not necessarily a hit piece on the authors of those declarations or the proponents or signatories of those agreements. You're right, Noel. For many, many years, the problem of environmental degradation was a political was seen as a political opportunity. It was politicized. People who were out to make money, consequences be damned, were quite successful leveraging the problems of human psychology, right? And now, now the idea of your opinion about environmentalism is inherently wrapped up in your concept of a tribe and your membership in a tribe. But the thing is, like, 
Okay, so people who were fighting for conservation, at least in the U.S., were often accused of being, quote, far-left radicals, or, they, you know, the accusation was they were unfairly attacking people who were just trying to earn a living, put food on the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera, whatever kind of political rhetoric was in vogue at the time. Or dare, that, dare, dare you say attacking a whole part of the country, right? Like middle right. America, you know, is under attack by far left radicals because they're trying to get rid of, you know, um, coal mining or, you know, impose all of these draconian standards on all of these stuff that people just want to earn a living. I mean, and of course, at some level, there's truth to that, like in terms of people needing to earn a living, but at what cost? Right. Also, economy is a religion. So I, <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that until somebody proves me wrong. But you, you guys are absolutely right. Uh, this, this shift, this politicization is very interesting if you are a student of history because a great many conservation movements in the U.S. and abroad had fairly patrician, politically conservative roots. You know, like the aristocracy would preserve land. For their own purposes, usually. Or uh, think of Teddy Roosevelt, who was a huge proponent of conservation and environmentalism. But he also liked to murder, you know, things a lot. True. <laughs> True, he did. He did. Uh, and right now, a lot of uh, large institutions are making tons of profit because people are not aware of this historical context. Right. The conversation has evolved. Things weren't always this way, sort of similar to how um, the Democrats and Republicans, so-called, of the like 1800s were way different than the people you see calling themselves that today. Uh, you have to look deeper into things to understand them. And regardless of where you find yourself on the political spectrum, arguments that politicize climate change are usually either, I'll say it, take a shot, cartoonishly ignorant, or they are made in bad faith to mislead credulous people. You, If you were listening and you were a human being, you need the same things as all the people that you love or hate or don't know across the planet. You know, you, you got to breathe, right? That's one of the things. You want to eat food, which means you need arable land or access to someone who has that. You also need clean water. It's cool to have shelter from the elements. These are like the base. This is uh, day one stuff, as they said in Workaholics. And the, and the problem is just too big for any one single institution to solve it on its own. There are too many players involved. Uh, you could call them stakeholders or whatever, but we're, we're not just talking about the almost 8 billion people who rely on the ecosystem to survive, which is, you know, that's everyone. We're also talking about the institutions that these people have formed throughout history or will form in the future. Like, um, okay. I, I hate that we have to say this, but we have to be fair, right? We talked about this in a world without plastic. There are, Huge private industries uh, that, you know, move billions, even trillions of dollars, depending on how you slice it. And if you flip a switch and you say, you know, like no more plastic, no more CO2 emissions or something like that, they are going to tank and they will drive millions of innocent people with them into the ground. Too much change too soon could be as dangerous as no change in the immediate future. If Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we already we alluded to that earlier in the episode, just when talking about the 
the whole problem in general of making one massive change. And the other thing to take into account here is that every country that exists has its own kind of economy that functions based on the resources and what's available within the land and sea that they own, right? And if you try and make a sweeping change on every one of those countries and every one of those economies, uh, let alone the global economy, uh, you're going to have major problems there. The same ones you just described, Ben, where one one company goes down or an industry goes down in a certain fishing you know, area, let's say on the northeast coast of the United States or, you know, of North America, um, you're going to have major issues, not only in that area, but then that's going to affect uh, the rest of the economy and the fishing economy. Uh, anyway, it's a bad example, but it's it's a major problem. Well, and not only that, you have uh, developing countries that are maybe just now starting to become, you know, um, economic superpowers or are working their way up to it. And they're like, what about all that time that you spent polluting, you know, and mm-hmm. getting to get up and running? And now you're saying that we have to cut back because of all the, you know, greenhouse gases you put out like over the years when we weren't like, that's not fair. <laughs> That's a that's a point I want to spend some time on in a second. In every like we are on the same page here. We might accidentally radicalize each other in this episode, folks, uh, which is fine. So you, <laughs> so we've got the companies. No matter if you, you love them, you hate them, you think they're a necessary evil, uh, it would be bad news if they all of a sudden had to flip a switch and stop. The economic consequences would be unprecedented. Those two, oh, almost 200 UN-recognized countries, they've each got their own vibes, often contradictory goals. They're not going to be super great at cooperating. And then, especially now to steal a line from Fox News, now more than ever, you have incredibly wealthy individuals, each of whom also has their own agenda, and they are capable of affecting these conversations at every single step along the way. If you are listening to today's show, odds are you can't do a thing to stop any of those three um, categories of entity. You can try to make your voice heard, uh, but the traditional channels, uh, it's going to be tough. Not everybody gets to be Greta Thunberg, you know? Uh, There's a prisoner's dilemma here at, at play as well. No one wants to get left behind. Logically, no one wants to commit to a decision or a policy that will leave them at a disadvantage. Very basic. Why would you, you know? Like, uh, I was trying to think of some examples, and I just came up with some hypothetical ones. So I was trying to think of, like, a really big corporation, and I just pulled Unilever out of a Scully's cranium over there. And let's say you're, let's say you're Nolan Matt, and you are the heads of Unilever, and you know that a lot of, let's say you make a lot of stuff that uses palm oil. And you know that the palm oil industry is very damaging to the ecosystems of which it's harvested. But you also know that if you decide to get some good PR and say, okay, we're cutting out all palm oil products and we're an international corporation, so we're going to make a splash with this, you know what's going to happen. If you do that, you're going to lose billions of dollars pretty quickly and worse, your competitors are going to move into that space, lickety split. So the problem is going to continue and you just won't be making money off of it. That is 100% what will happen. 
Yeah, it's like like Lego, for example. They're not going to stop using plastic, but they did make a gesture in saying they're going to phase out plastic bags in their packaging. So it's like that's sort of the middle ground of PR opportunity there because your Lego – it's such a hit to your supply. You can't, what are you going to make it out of? Like seashells? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you got to figure something out. And that's a much more long-term problem to figure out a material that they can actually integrate into their supply chain to replace plastics and oil-based products. So instead they're like, well, we know that this problem, but we're Lego. <laughs> we we got to have your Legos. So let's just, you know, make the bags out of paper, you know, or I think yeah. McDonald's even is like their Happy Meal toys are not made of plastic anymore. They're made of paper, but they're also going to still have plastic straws right yeah there's I, I mean it's it's true it really is a pickle because uh, these the folks who are in charge of these decisions are trying to mitigate damage but they're trying to mitigate it in a way that is sustainable for their enterprise if not sustainable for the planet and the t- the scale of time that that is one of the biggest complicating factors here. Let's say, okay, let's say you're Paul Mission Control Decant. You are the ruler of. Let's give Paul Transylvania. Is that yeah. good? Okay. I also love right. that he's the ruler. He's just the ruler of it. You know, mm-hmm. with a with a very tasteful iron fist. Mission Control rules Transylvania, and. As the leader of this country, he knows that his nation depends upon certain industries that are damaging to the environment. Maybe it's mining, maybe it's oil, rare earth minerals, whatever. Maybe it's uh, mono agriculture and just exports one thing. And that's what most of the arable land is used for. So uh, dear leader, Paul Deccant says, okay, I could end these industries. And if I do then Transylvania will play a role in making the world arguably a better place decades from now. I won't be around to see it. Instead, I will be the scapegoat. I will be public enemy number one. I'll be the guy who tanked the economy and put the population in the poorhouse and out of work. That also is 100% the calculus that a lot of world leaders use, and they're not wrong is the problem. They're not wrong. That's why they still mine asbestos in parts of Russia, you know? Because there's that, what is that whole town, Aspest, I believe, something like that. That is, that is that's literally their their one industry, um, and everyone that's there doing that job is okay with doing that job. <laughs> so yeah, keep putting it out. What else are you gonna do? You know, uh, the, these are broad kind of. Uh, aside from Russia, which is a real world example, these are broad hypothetical examples, but we guarantee you they are based in fact. And so now the question becomes. Same old question. Everybody knows there's a problem. Everybody knows something needs to be done. Can't we all just get along and agree on a solution? Record scratch. No, actually, no, we cannot. We will not. As discussed earlier, many of the countries and entities that are driving these conversations about environmentalism and preservation, they're coming from a place of immense historical privilege. Like, of course, and this is not a ding on our British or European friends in the audience today, but think about it. Of course, the UK and Western Europe can get kind of high and mighty about the conversation around alternative energy because they're still sitting pretty off untold trillions of dollars of historical profits from the coal power of the industrial age to slavery to colonialism, all the other sins of the past made them a lot of money and gave them a lot of influence and they still have it. So of course, if you're an up and coming country 
Um, you'll sometimes hear them referred to as the BRIC countries. It's a little bit of a misnomer, but it's an acronym that stands for uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Countries like on that level. Of course, you're going to be frustrated if some if some grand poobah from the UN comes to you and says, okay, yeah, destroying the planet was all fine and dandy for us, but you guys are going to need to find a different, more expensive route to our level of success. Funny voice, take a drink. <laughs> was that a funny voice or was it my real voice? So it's, I, I, it's tough. It's tough. And, and people here have valid concerns. Big change rarely happens overnight unless you're talking about like Pompeii or another natural disaster. So like you were talking about earlier, Matt, things have to be phased in and out pretty slowly. This takes a huge level of commitment across administrations, across governments, across continents, across generations. And it requires, this is an even trickier thing, it requires everybody involved to imagine a future that for better or worse does not yet exist. We can just see the problems on the horizon. I think I've got a, I, I even have a note in the outline. Like, folks, we are past the tipping point. We are, I, I was talking with, um, uh, we have a good friend of the show, a very old friend of Noel's named Matt Riddle. And Matt Riddle and I were talking about this recently. Um, maybe the best analogy for where human civilization and climate change is now is to say this, I'm freestyling a little, but let's say, you're still, for some reason, driving that horrid Peugeot-Honda-Odyssey hybrid we made up earlier, and you have careened off the road. You are at the point in a car accident where everything seems to slow down. You see the tree that you're going to hit. You are going to hit the tree. Now it's just a question of how much time you have to put your seatbelt on, whether you have time to have an airbag or something like that. The car crash is coming, and that's a scary thing for people to think about. We don't want to think about it, but the statistics are all there. We've mentioned them multiple times in past episodes. Uh, like, parts of the world are going to be uninhabitable without around-the-clock technology creating a more hospitable environment. And this is just true. I mean, Tool predicted it in the song Anima, you know, I mean, what, decades ago? California Bay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Arizona Bay, yeah. Arizona that's, Bay, that's, that's one. But basically, it's that whole, you know, pretty accepted idea that parts of California are going to fall into the ocean. And again, this isn't fear-mongering. I mean, you can find multiple... I mean, innumerable resources that, that that show the stats heading in that direction. It's also probably why California is like ground zero for so much, conser- you know, conservation, um, environmentalist kind of activism. Because they're like really at risk. Yeah. Uh, and that that event is further off in the future where California falls away because of no, catastrophic tectonic movements. But the the stuff we are talking about is is very real, especially the ones where places will be underwater and uh, the drought situation and des- desertification of places is going to continue pretty rapidly uh, very, very soon. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just going to get worse as time goes on. Uh, it's going to happen in your lifetime if you're listening now. Uh, but what you should be even more concerned about uh, will be your loved ones who continue after you. Uh, real estate is going to become a much more dicey proposition. And countries like the Maldives, for instance, are probably going to be underwater pretty soon. Climate refugees are going to continue to flee 
from these sorts of these sorts of large scale changes. Uh, we're talking millions of people, not hundreds of thousands, millions on the way to you if you live in a place that will still be habitable. Things are going to become increasingly expensive. And then they're going to become unavailable. And that's something that I, I would posit was a foreign concept to many people living in the United States until COVID shortages hit. Like, I don't think a lot of folks in the U.S. are aware that in a lot of other places in the world, you will run into situations where you stuff just isn't there. The grocery store shelves are empty, even if you have money. Not to mention resource wars, you know, on right. a larger scale. That's already a thing that happens. Like there were water wars, disputes, you know, between, I believe, Georgia and Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that, you know, and those are real problems in terms of like potable water and like who controls the resources, you know? I mean, not to get too doom and gloom, but like think about how it was in Mad Max Fury Road. That's like the most extreme version of that. But I mean, water is could be the most precious commodity of them all. Yeah. And right now we're seeing legal battles in a, a lot of those situations, yes. at least within yes. the United States, but those will quickly turn into more intense situations. Yes. Hand to hand combat. Mm -hmm. And if you want to if you want to look at that, going to the earlier idea of uh, science fiction often becoming fact and nonfiction, uh, do check out a great collection of short stories called Pump Six. Uh, one of those stories is about a is a pretty plausible scenario about the future of water and privatization. Or check out our episode on World War Three, our episode on water wars, our YouTube videos on it. it the truth is out there. The facts are in. These are not these are not conspiracies, but we're getting to the conspiracy. The big thing is conventional solutions, as we've outlined, don't work. We could fill hours debating them, their pros and cons. They come in all sorts of forms. You'll see the glossy PR pledges from insert company here. Lego says this. McDonald's says that. You'll also see those non-binding resolutions from international organizations, UN committees. You'll see any number of TED Talks. You'll see sweeping declarations from billionaires like Bill Gates says we need to fix this or that or whatever. And to to be clear, the vast majority of those proposed solutions are made in good faith, and they're made by very intelligent people, but they fall short of their goals, and they fade from the headlines. It makes sense that they fade from the headlines because, let's face it, fellow conspiracy realists, most people don't like to think about the end of the world, especially if they feel like they've got it pretty good right now. They're also not sexy because they're long-term solutions. That you, you know, People want instant gratification. So it's like, you know, it, it's a lot to ask for people to, like, think about 10 years down the line when they can have something yesterday. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're only in office for four to eight years. But yeah, seriously. I would posit the biggest problem we face is that the solutions to these problems are not inherently profitable. Inherently yeah, profitable. No, no right? joke, dude. Wow. Because no, I mean, you're so right. I mean, who who pays you right now to clean carbon out of the ocean? There, there are, you know, mm -hmm. groups uh, from colleges and, and companies that are attempting to do that kind of work and develop technologies for that. But who's going to pay you outside of maybe a government grant because, the, you know, the citizens are paying more taxes 
so that then it can happen. And it's just, it's not, it's not immediately appealing to anyone other than each individual's self-preservation or the need for it. I mean, maybe once they figure out how to turn that ocean cleaning stuff into like the spice melange or something, you know, but uh, other than that, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty dire. That's where you see uh, more like neoliberal market-based approaches. That's where you. That's why outfits like The Economist are always so Twitter-pated about a carbon tax. You know what I mean? Uh, and is that is that a a viable solution? Some people are convinced it is. Other people are convinced it's not. But but we are living in the sixth great mass extinction. For anybody who is looking for another example of a mass extinction, think about why we don't have dinosaurs anymore, right? Like we have things that survive from dinosaurs, chickens, et cetera, but you're not going to see a T-Rex until cloning goes, you know, uh, cloning reaches some breakthroughs. Or maybe in the metaverse. (laughs) Or maybe you'll see an NFT T-Rex. Who knows? NFT Rex. But the issue is, And I I think about this a lot, and I wish more people would mention this. We are living in what is commonly called nowadays the Anthropocene, right? So you know about like the Pleistocene, et cetera. The Anthropocene is just a dressed up word for the age of humanity. And it is overwhelmingly likely that the biggest legacy, all these people who have lived and died will end up leaving is a wreck of earth is a mass extinction. We are in the middle of it. It is happening. It is possible that the idea of wildlife will sound like a crazy story to your grandchildren. That's again, I'm not being hyperbolic. This is happening. And this is something people knew about for more than half a century. And this frustration turned to desperation. And some folks said we have to go beyond writing letters or going to protest or just recycling, you know, for five cent refunds, <laughs> you know, when you turn in a glass bottle or something. And that's where we saw the rise of something called radical environmentalism in the 1960s. And we can dive into a little more of that ideology as the show goes on. But from radical environmentalism, we see the rise of people and groups who decided let's cut past these useless doomed negotiations. Let's skip beyond the half measures, those so-called toothless proposals. Let's take direct action. Today, those people are known as eco-terrorists. But what are they? We'll pause. We'll tell you after a word from our sponsors. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Here's where it gets crazy. All right. I told you guys earlier, uh, I figured it out. My favorite eco-terrorist, Captain Planet, as played by Don Cheadle. That's good. For sure. It's a good sketch. I get, you know, I get it. I get it. I don't know if I agree with him, but I get where he's coming from. <laughs> he, he is, he's, he's an eco-terrorist. Uh, eco-terrorist, what does it mean? It's a portmanteau, obviously, uh, ecology plus terrorism. It's a combo not quite as popular as peanut butter and jelly. Uh, and at first glance, it feels like a really loaded term. Like you would hear this on far-right news. Right. Someone would say these people want to stop an oil pipeline. They're eco terrorists. You know what I mean? And next up, the war on Christmas. It feels very, very uh, biased. But I found something interesting. Uh, the the far left activists that were described as eco terrorists, they had a war with the far right to control the definition of that word. And they were saying stuff like, hey, we're not the eco terrorists. ExxonMobil is the eco-terrorist. They are t- terrorizing Earth with what they're doing. Unfortunately, the left 
lost that argument. And so now when you hear eco-terrorists, you have to be really conscious of the source because you might just be hearing like a, a hit piece from a corporation disguised as news. Absolutely. No, no question about it. That term has been weaponized. Would, would the weather underground be considered eco-terrorism? I know they were domestic terrorists. They seem more political specifically, but it all is kind of political since the environment's been politicized. So you're kind of fighting against policy too when you're, uh, when you're carrying out some of these acts. Yeah, yeah. The uh, weather underground probably has some Venn diagram situations, some overlap in notable individuals and so on. But they are they're not they're not considered as focusing on environmental issues. Uh, They were more oriented, as you said, toward uh, political change, like the big proponents of communist ideology. Uh, I, I don't know when I hear like when I think of conservation environmental groups, I think of like the Panda logo on the World Wildlife Fund or Federation or whatever it's called, you know, the other WWF. I think of like Sarah McLaughlin telling you to treat puppies better. In the I, eyes I of the, oh, yeah. the arms of the angels. I was just talking to my kid about that the other night. She never had, had the privilege of experiencing that ad campaign with the sad puppies in the shelters and Sarah McLaughlin's saddest song in the world, especially when paired with sad puppies. Yeah. Yeah. But this is like, like when you think of this kind of activism, you probably have a stereotype in your head, right? There's a, there's a scent of patchouli wafting through the air. Someone's playing a sitar. Everybody is wearing something that's somehow made out of hemp. You probably don't think of people launching RPGs at, at nuclear facilities, but that's part and parcel of this. Uh, eco-terrorists are defined by their tactics, more so than their ideology, but ideology is part of it. Uh, these are acts, they're perpetrating acts of violence against people or property or companies with the aim of not killing folks, but disrupting actions that they feel are damaging to the environment. And the word itself is, is kind of new. It's uh, from like the 1960s, you could call it 1970s, it gets popularized. But the idea of using guerrilla tactics to fight the power is a it's, it's like surprisingly old. A lot of people have done this. A lot of people have like banded together in sort of a um, we must protect the wild kind of vibe. Uh, one example is uh, in France in 1827, a bunch of peasants revolted against the government's new codes regarding forestry and uh, how to harvest resources from the forest, who could do what, etc. And they went into a full-out war. It's called the War of the Maidens. So they didn't call it eco-terrorism, but that's what it was. That's what we would call it today. The French take foraging very seriously. And then additionally, take the example of indigenous native populations in the Americas when Europeans came to colonize this and they they have very different philosophies on how uh, humans should relate to the land right and native populations fought to protect their philosophy which was clearly less exploitative than the pitch that these uh colonials were coming in with it's weird a ton of people throughout history have fought wars over how they feel land should be used or preserved and when we talk about eco-terrorists, there are real, genuine groups that can be described 
as such. It's not, it's important to say, it's not like one lone actor, right? It's not some quote unquote unstable person going rogue, right? These are groups who get together for this purpose. And I was surprised to find that the FBI back in 2008 specifically name-checked eco-terrorist as, quote, one of the most serious domestic terrorism threats in the U.S. today. And they backed up the reasoning, too. Like, they had, at first I thought, I don't know, you guys are exaggerating. But then they laid out, they, they laid out their rationale, and it does make sense that they would describe them as a serious threat. Yes, and this assessment was due to the volume of crimes, over 2,000 known incidents from 1979 to 2008. And uh, if you think about the economic impact of those incidents, it was over $110 million. And that also includes the wide range of victims, the, you know, the companies and things that were impacted by the actions and incidents. Um, the FBI saw an increasing trend toward violence, and there was also a 2004 FBI document you can read on archives.fbi.gov. That's from 2004, and it just it's the same kind of thing. It's a judiciary committee where they're talking about the extreme seriousness of eco-terrorism, and they, they're taking it very, very seriously. And then at this point, of course, this is where we all have to have that gut check with ourselves and say, how much do I trust the FBI? We'll get to that part, too. Yeah, we'll get to that part, too. But uh, let's let's talk about some specific groups that have been described as eco-terrorists. There's Earth Liberation Front or ELF. I know it's ELF, but I like saying ELF. Uh, There's Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty or SHAC uh, or, you know, personal favorite, Animal Liberation Front. ALF. Yeah. I just like that it's elf. Does it eat cats, do you think? <laughs> I was wondering about that too. I haven't I haven't emailed them yet. Uh it's not very eco friendly well, eating cats. Yeah, that's true. Well, if you if you get rid of cats, you're saving birds. So a lot of these groups are usually going to be focused on two things. One, some version or genre of radical environmentalism, or two uh, some kind of animal rights initiative. And and people may try and label other groups as eco-terrorists, but there's a, there's differences. Consider the Sea Shepherd group that we looked at not that long ago, the one that, you know, had a ship back in the 60s and 70s. I can't remember the exact time frame of Sea Shepherd's activities, but I know it was in the 70s where they were going around and actually running into ships that were whaling off the coast of Japan where they're, they're taking violent action, right? The weird thing, the kind of gray area that it leads you to though, is that sea shepherd was generally, I'm going to say this generally fighting against people that were taking illegal actions or actions that were illegal in, you know, to some country, to some, you know, group would consider it illegal, even though maybe it's not illegal in one other country. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just a weird gray area that can exist there. Cause I'm also thinking about uh, other groups that are animal rights activists, but are not animal rights. They, They don't take part in animal rights terrorism necessarily, but it's right on the line. It feels like, cause it just depends on the definition. It feels like. Uh, like throwing paint on a fur coat or something like that. Like, is that a prank? Is that an act of terrorism, et cetera? Perhaps, I mean, it's technically assault. But, you know, but, but, but yeah, I feel it like. goes deeper than that, too. Uh, sure. Know, 
with some other groups that I'm not even going to name right now. But um, I don't know that that kind of thing is is a bit weird because it. Well, let's talk about Sea uh, Shepherd again. I'm having such trouble saying Sea Shepherd. Um, <laughs> You're nailing it. They're the ones that that uh, are concerned with like the dolphin slaughter in Japan and things like that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they've got a amazing ship that looks like it's it means business. It looks like a warship. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's pretty intense. Uh, shout out, by the way, to uh, all our friends in New Zealand who wrote to us uh, in regards to that episode. That's where the event with the Sea Shepherd occurred. Uh, do check out that episode and don't let that story be forgotten. Uh, and, you know, it was France. France did it. France did what would be considered an act of terrorism in that case. Uh, and the name of the ship was the Rainbow Warrior. But as that's Matt said, right. Don't, oh, what a great name. Yeah. For a ship. Don't don't let the name fool you. It is not a uh, warm, fuzzy Care Bear type of ship. It's built for business. Uh, anyway, now we know that eco-terrorism as a concept is it's not maybe quite what the name implies because when you think of terrorism you think of things like purposeful mass casualty events you think of the 9-11s you think of um, bombings or gassings on trains you think of suicide bombers the vast majority of acts described as eco-terrorism are meant to disrupt an activity and in fact you'll hear people who are involved in these groups and people who lead these groups saying that they intentionally avoid harming humans or animals or that they do everything in their power to make sure no one gets hurt. But when the uh, palm oil hits the chocolate, of course, these things can result in injuries and fatalities. And I think we, especially if you're talking about explosions and fires, which is something that happens pretty often. Yes, yes, exactly. Like, we're not talking about your garden variety protests. We're not talking about just culture jamming. Although culture jamming is a really cool thing. Shout out to all the Discordians in the crowd today. We are talking about things like sabotage, arson, bombing. Um, Most of the actions aren't that extreme, you know. Um, There's stuff like, uh, like tree spiking. Have you guys heard about tree spiking? Just, just from reading the research on this episode it's it's definitely interesting it reminds me of like you know i think there's a lot of misinformation around the like the idea of Lud- the luddites or whatever like sabotaging printing presses it's the idea of you know sabotaging a supply chain or something that does not ideologically sit right with you and i guess what you'd, you'd put you'd put things in you'd hammer spikes in the trees so that it would damage equipment potentially yeah yeah but it's not just equipment that would get damaged <laughs> right because there are people on the other side of those chainsaws is is the problem. That's the flaw in the system there. So uh, tree spiking is exactly like you described, Noel. Uh, you sneak onto a logging site or a future logging site, and you hammer in some spikes in the trunk of a tree around where somebody would be attempting to cut the tree down. This is not going to kill the tree. It's not going to do serious damage to it, just like tapping a tree for maple syrup is not going to kill the tree. So what they're doing is they're essentially, it's like, if these trees were people, imagine if there was a way you could make everybody get an earring or a nose ring, and it meant that they wouldn't be shot in the street. That's a weird analogy, but that's almost 100% one-to-one. 
Really quickly, I know the Luddites did not damage printing presses. It was like cotton mills or woolen mills and cotton gins and things like that. I'm seeing if Matt will let me slide with that terrible analogy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, they're not all going to be winners. We're working <laughs> live. But, but the, the problem with this is like milling equipment uh, could also be affected by these tree spikes. Uh, if you have ever, if you've had much experience logging or with a chainsaw, you know that they can be quite dangerous if something goes wrong, right? So in at least one case, this practice of tree spiking did result in a serious injury, but not a fatality. And so far, none of the tree spiking things in particular have led to fatalities. They're meant to be disruptive. Yeah. And it's also not led to a major change in how the logging companies continue on. You just get more equipment. Ding, ding, ding. Because, uh, yeah. And then you've made, you've, you're essentially creating waste of large, uh, you know, metal filled equipment that's just going to go into a garbage heap somewhere. Uh, oh, that's a good that point. That stinks too. to think about. Yeah. <laughs> If, you, does, if you're someone trying to do good yeah. by taking this kind of action, right? Right. Perceived right. Good. And then you could say, well, well, it's it's still on balance a good thing to do because I am saving some trees. Maybe the logging company will say, we don't know how many trees have been spiked. We can't check every one. So we're going to at least hold off on logging. You, you know, we're going to hold off on this part of our operation. But I would argue a lot of this stuff, a lot of these activities and tactics are just examples of the larger concept of sabotage, which is known as monkey wrenching. Sabotage is a cool word with great etymology. We'll leave you to discover it. Um, they, there's also another buzzword I found, which I don't like. It's very rare for me to hate a word, but ecotage. Did you guys ever hear of that one? No. Is that like, like ecotage? Is it like making like like scrapbooking sabotaging stuff for uh, a local ecological system uh, you know it occurs to me with the whole spiking thing and like you know your point Matt about well they just get new equipment uh, not only do they just get new equipment they just make it harder for like you know the workers that they, they, they add more security you know to the sites and, and make it more prohibitive to, to work there in the same way that like the TSA after 9-11 like you know the terrorists did not win except in making us have to you know take our shoes off which then causes the price of lumber to rise just slightly because the company has to charge more money to hire more people, which then makes they the company to make want more to, to make, this, make yep. more because it's going to be more profitable. Oh, God. <laughs> you see the feedback loop. Yikes. Yep. This is hard. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, so listen, everyone, it's Ecotage. Whatever. Shout out to the Beastie Boys. We do. I would oh my listen God. to a parody song of that. I will write the lyrics for that, and we can we can be the Beastie Boys for a second. But but uh, this these actions, this emphasis on sabotage, is in a very large way inspired by a novel written by a guy named Edward Abbey in 1975. The name of the novel: The Monkey Wrench Gang. The Monkey Wrench Gang follows a Vietnam vet, former prisoner of war, named George Hayduke, who 
uh, is trying to fight back against people polluting the southwestern desert where he lives and he loves the land. So he has a campaign of sabotage. This inspires the creation of these real life eco terrorist groups such as Earth First. You have to say it that way because the the exclamation marks in the name. Irma Gerd, Earth First. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it sounds so nice. So does Elf and Alf. Mm-hmm. They sound it very does. pleasant. Although uh, none of it looks, none of it seems that nice when it's spray painted on the side of a trailer. Guys, I've seen numerous versions of it just like hastily scrawled. You know what else sounds nice? The Monkey Wrench Gang sounds like a charming Disney film from the 40s, like the Apple Dumpling Gang. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the The thing here is that those acts, those disruptive acts that are kind of in that gray area we've described, like what what could be called just vandalism or a prank versus what what do you call terrorism? I mean, the FBI is pretty loose with their definition of terrorism. Uh, and you could say that's by necessity. You could say that there is a financial motivation because the more things that can be classified as terrorism, uh, the more funding you can get for counterterrorism, right? That's another feedback loop. But there are things that are very serious, very dangerous crimes. Uh, one would be arson. Uh, Elf, in particular, the ELF, became infamous throughout the 90s and early 2000s for pretty consistent, decentralized arson sabotage kind of campaign. Uh, they, it included the arson of a ski resort. And then other acts of arson were... Um, Oh, okay, I got thoughts on this one, guys. Other acts of arson were things like housing developments, uh, construction sites, auto dealerships, chain stores. I, I want to share an example of something that has really stuck with me. And I was thinking about this while I was researching the, the ethical dilemmas at play in this episode. So we have a chain restaurant here in Atlanta in the U.S. called Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, uh, on pretty much a cyclical basis, will get bad press in the news because they have in the past supported things that are like anti same sex marriage very it's it's a very conservative uh christian based chicken joint and there when this this spiked again a few years ago and it'll spike again in the future because chick-fil-a is not really going to change right they've seen that they don't lose a ton of money uh so they're they're you know, they're not going to be compelled to change their ideology. Think of all the money they could make just staying open on Sunday. I mean, right. they are committed to the bit here. Right. And look, full disclosure, true. Kathy gave me money and tons of his books when I became an Eagle Scout and I cashed the check. You know what I mean? I was a broke teenager, so I'm in a glass house here. Yeah. And where we live, the lines for Chick-fil-A's never go down. It doesn't matter what time it is. There's always a massive line and they move super quickly. Those places make bank. They got, they got it down to a science, man. Yeah, the logistics are, yeah, no shame in that. The logistics are amazing. But here's why I'm bringing up Chick-fil-A and the controversy with their political funding. There was a video that went viral of this guy who goes to a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. And maybe you guys have seen this. Maybe uh, some of the, our fellow listeners have seen this. This guy goes to a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. He's filming on his cell phone. And there's this there's this kid. She's a teenager. She has to work the drive-thru at the Chick-fil-A. And this guy is excoriating this child, screaming 
screaming at this kid, making her cry uh, because of Chick-fil-A's conservative political ideology. And that's super unfair because this kid has nothing to do with that. This kid is just like slinging sandwiches and probably wants to get an A on her geometry quiz the next day. And that's like, that's what I think about when I, when I hear about someone's like you work at a dealership and the dealership gets bombed. What, what, what are you the one at the UN who makes decisions about carbon emissions? No, you like you mop the floor at a place that sells SUVs or you used to. Now you're now you're out of a job. What, what is that greater good? I don't know. I think you can lose humanity very easily in those sorts of situations. It makes me want to drill down into this. The Vail, Colorado arson that we described that the Earth Liberation Front uh, did, the specifically the one in Vail, Colorado, happened in 1998, I believe. Um, if you if you find like the there's an independent article that was written at the time about it that goes through some of the specifics and you learn how it's actually carried out, how they're you know <laughs> they were supposedly going to be timed. Uh, not explosive devices, but devices that would cause a fire to start on a gas tank. And they were set up all around this, this ski resort in Vail, Colorado. And it took two people to carry out the actual event where they set fire to at least three buildings uh, and the fire spread after that point. There's an interesting moment in that article specifically that says the person that set the fires noticed there were human beings in one of the buildings where he had planned to set the fire, but chose not to set the fire in that building, um, which kind of, you know, makes it speaks to the points that we've been mentioning this whole time. The attempt isn't to kill a human. Uh, the The attempt is to stop a larger thing from happening. In this case, it was the expansion of this Vail ski resort out there in Colorado. Because they were going to take over more of the land that was, you know, at least according to this group's beliefs, that land should be kept natural, right? And it was one of the last places where, oh, Lord, I'm having a hard time recalling the article, but I believe it was one of the last refuges for the lynx, the cat lynx. Um, I think you're correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, too. There's another uh, situation with Elf that really shows how... The, the the period you guys described where the government was really out to get these types of groups and, and they were made a really big priority uh, no matter what it took. Um, there is a guy who is a member of ELF who is essentially, I don't know, framed, I guess, more or less, um, by an FBI informant who infiltrated the group, um, only referred to as Anna in the, in the court proceedings and all that. And uh, apparently she acted as an agent provocateur, at least according mm -hmm. to this guy's uh, lawyer. I'm sorry, the guy's name by the way was Eric McDavid. Um, and his lawyer made the argument that this Anna, who was providing them with bomb making information and materials and things like that, and like paying for them to live and, you know, renting a cabin for them to like build the, the bombs in and transportation, all this stuff uh, was acting, you know, coercing them into making plans to bomb this dam, the Nimbus Dam, uh, and also the U.S. Forest Service and other utilities in the area. Uh, and this guy got off. He served eight years and some change, but um, that agent provocateur argument ultimately, you know, convinced the judge to uh, have him released. Um, mm -hmm. And that happened in 2017 after he spent eight years and, and some change of his life, you know, behind bars. 
and he can't get those eight years back. Also, check out our earlier episode, Does the FBI Manufacture Terrorists? The answer is yes, unfortunately, or certainly attempt to. Um, the real question is the motivations and the level of awareness they had uh, when they were doing this. But you can, you know, that's similar to the story about the mosque who reported an FBI undercover agent for trying to turn people into suicide bombers. Right. Oops. Right. <laughs> Maybe right. we should have uh, lightened up a little bit there with the mm-hmm. coercing. And this, yeah, and this is a great setup for for uh, part of our final act today. Uh, I, I do want to point out something that's a little bit cynical here. Uh, Matt, you, point, you noted that uh, ELF members during the ski resort arson, uh, one of them did decide not to blow up a building because he was worried that he would injure or uh, kill people, right? Understandable thing. And it's in line with the stated goals of these organizations. However, there is a, uh, there is a slightly less possible noble motivation for this. And this is something, this is something you might not know if you're not super acquainted with the criminal world, but if you are perpetrating certain acts and you're, you already know what crimes you are going to be committing, you want to try to uh, do your best to avoid more serious charges. That's why, that's why sometimes in robberies, right, if you see someone get shot, you'll, you'll find that some criminals will purposely shoot someone kind of like below the waist or in below the knee and the leg, because then it doesn't count as attempted murder, right? Is, is the concept. Uh, now that your mileage may vary, please don't mug people and shoot them. Uh, please, you know, just try not to kill anybody. I feel like that's a very low bar to set. Try not to kill people. Um, but there, I, I, I bring that up only because I'm wondering whether there was some kind of calculus like that, whether it's they said, look, if we do get caught for this, we don't want to be charged with murder, right? Uh, you just have to make space for it. Personally, I think they probably just didn't want to hurt actual people. But again, it's tough to know people's inner motivations. You know who we could ask about it is Josephine Sunshine Overacre, the one who got away, uh, currently believed to be at large in Europe. Wanted by the FBI, uh, Josephine, if you're listening, uh, would would love to have you on the show. We just have to find you. <laughs> so, uh, which group oh, was she yeah. a member of? ELF. She was associated with the 1998 attacks that Matt was talking about. Got it. Uh, and there was one guy who just got arrested in 2018, and he was on the run for more than a decade. But one of them did get away. Anyhow, this is still not the most extreme example. You were promised an RPG, fellow conspiracy realist. And at this point, you're asking yourself, where is my RPG? Just like, you know, uh, Dennis in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Here it is. Actual bombing. Travel to France. 1982. January 18th. Eco-terrorists are super mad that there's a nuclear reactor being built, a nuclear power plant called Super Phoenix, which sounds so fresh. Awesome. <laughs> right. Uh, so... In, in, in the midst of these protests, these attempts to shut down construction, some eco-terrorists actually got RPGs, military-grade rocket-propelled grenade devices, from a uh, known arms dealer, Carlos the Jackal, 
That's really what he's called. We That's the one, right? The, that. There's the movie, The Jackal, with, uh, what's his name? Bruce Willis. Carlos the Jackal. Yeah, real dude. Gave, gave these folks some RPGs, and they fired them at a nuclear power plant. That was, granted, still under construction. And years later, somebody came out and admitted the responsibility for the attack. A guy named Chaim Neesom, uh, who <laughs> went on to become a Swiss politician and... This guy is good at politics. You could tell just from just from a quote we pulled. He his statement of the events. He later, you know, talked about this in a book. His statement of the events shows us a rationale uh, that's pretty common with a lot of these direct action groups. And it's um, I don't know. I, I'd love I'd love to hear everybody's take on it. Who wants to? Who, who's got a good Chaim Neeson voice? I know that it might sound odd to consider rockets as a nonviolent means of action. However, we took every imaginable precaution to be certain that no worker was at risk of being hit. Therefore, we committed a nonviolent attack. This is me with an RPG. What? What? <laughs> I mean, I in a know. weird way, it's yeah. true. It is a, n- mm. mm, a nonviolent it- attack. In a way, it's true. In another way, is very, very much not. That's messed up. The only uh, nonviolent RPG I know about involves a, a twenty-sided die. Right. Yeah. This. So I I thought that was interesting because you can see you can see the rationale. That's textbook rationale. And to Neeson's credit, no one was injured by that RPG attack. But we're we're going to pause for a moment. We know today's episode is running a little long, but we're we're going to pause. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about what this all means. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we have returned. So to sum this up, we have to talk about the importance of perspective, right? The importance of empathy, humanity, and um, and the cliff upon which this civilization is teetering. For a lot of us in the audience today, the ethical dilemmas are clear. First, yes, Earth is in a bad way. And second, yes, humans are responsible. And without dismissing the massive, massive efforts of various institutions, we have to note that they they have not been as effective as people had hoped. But on the other hand, and I think this is something we were talking about throughout the length of this show, how effective are these actions in the grand scheme of things, eco-terrorism has added more fuel to the flame of the surveillance state. And as a result, countless innocent people are targeted for surveillance. There is so much money in that industry. Yes, surveillance is an industry. But I'm just saying being on the mailing list of a vegan co-op shouldn't mean someone is automatically getting treated as the next Osama bin Laden. Like, I, I don't think you should be tracked for those kind of things, but it's proven that the FBI is doing that. And, you know, we can say all terrorism is, regardless of ideology, it's inherently conspiratorial, right? You are conspiring to do something. And terrorism, well, you know, people don't mention this as often as they should, but terrorism is also in some ways an opportunity, for intelligence agencies, for people involved in the world of surveillance, because it it gives them an enemy, right? It gives them something to fight and pursue. And you could argue then, this is just, this is a valid argument. I don't know what the answer is, but you could argue that through these acts, these eco-terrorists, direct action groups, whatever you want to call them, may actually be empowering the growth of some of the entities they seek to fight. You know, I, I think about that all the time. Like they are targeting the people who literally bankroll politicians, right? That's a lot different from knocking over a dollar store or something, you know? Uh, and then we talk about it all the time. The people on the ground, what's their perspective? They're just people like anyone else. The average person on an oil drilling platform isn't some arch supervillain 
from Captain Planet. They're just trying to not get fired. You know what I mean? They want to go on vacation someday. They want to get home safe. And they're not dumb. In fact, most people, if they're given the opportunity and the space to really think things through, most people are incredibly intelligent. It means the people who are working on these oil rigs, they are aware of the problems posed by the oil industry. In fact, they probably know more about it than people who are outside of the industry. They know what they're doing. And they're not, they're not trying to ruin the planet. They're trying to stay alive. Also, this, to me, this is the big thing about a lot of these sorts of tactics. Is it not clear that most people react adversely to hostile action? Violence is very rarely going to prompt some come-to-Jesus critical thinking moment on the part of the victim. You know, those folks who are on whaling ships, you know, if, they get, if they get slammed into by a sea shepherd vessel or whatever, if someone's throwing stink bombs on them, someone's trashing their equipment, they're not going to say, oh, snap, good point. We should change our lives. You know what I mean? They're going to be pissed. We'll build back twice as, you know, powerful, you know, come mm-hmm. back on them twofold. That's that's the way that's what that prompts. Yeah, exactly. Because that is I want everyone to hear the capital letters here. That is how humans are for better or worse. It's been this way for a while. It's not going to change. And then on the other side, the people that the media are calling eco-terrorists, they don't think of themselves as the bad guys and they don't all agree. They're not monolithic. Some are issue specific. Save the whales, save the redwoods, save the Amazon, etc. And some are more extreme. Some people want to return the world to a pre-industrial age, which is not going to happen unless some really terrible stuff happens first. But... The way I keep coming back to, and I think what we all keep coming back to is simply this. The numbers are in. We've mentioned the various statistics that have been confirmed multiple times by multiple reputable sources. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And conventional approaches just don't seem to be moving the needle. And that's where we get to the end of the show, the questions. There are questions no one's really managed to answer. What should be done? What can be done? You know, the the clock is ticking. And I know the the three of us didn't take any um, any really hard stance on for it or against it, quote unquote, eco-terrorism, because like there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I don't know. I understand the impulse. I understand the frustration that would lead to thinking that the only way forward is through extreme action. I I think it's misguided oftentimes, but also like, what's the alternative? It's so hard to get things done through policy. You know, it's so hard and it's just like a slog mind numbing. It makes you want to give up. What's the term you used, Ben? Cautiously nihilistic, optimistically nihilistic. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to take it back to that movie, Don't Look Up Again, that's on Netflix right now, if you want to watch it. Yeah. There's a great companion podcast called The Last Movie Ever Made. It talks with the cast and crew about how they made it, but specifically it goes to the writing process of the script itself and why it was created. And the reason it was created is because Adam McKay was looking at the climate change issue and realized all the things we've talked about today, the inevitability of the consequences, that there's nothing that any individual can do. It feels like no change can occur. And he just we all know that it's coming. And the people who are in charge who could, you know, possibly make changes can't make changes because their hands are tied or 
they decide not to because it's not politically a good thing for them to do. And he turned it into a movie about an asteroid heading towards Earth rather than just the you know slow death of life on the planet. Uh, I would just recommend everybody go and listen to that. Just if you really want a good downer. <laughs> yeah, he uh, doesn't love a and, good downer. But it lets you, but it really speaks to the desperation we're talking about here of why somebody would throw up their hands and say, well, I'm going to set fire to some of these freaking buildings. Maybe that'll change something. Yeah. I mean, the other the other alternative is to try to go rage against the machine, right? F- the G-Ride, I want the machines that are making them, right? To mm, own good the reference. companies that create the problems. Uh, but that is simply not possible for the majority of humanity. People can't just buy companies. It's the riot versus protest distinction. You know what I mean? Where it's like people are protesting and, you know, some things get destroyed, is that protesting or is that being cast as a riot as a political way of framing it to to make it to spin it in a way that makes the protesters look like criminals you yeah know, i think there's shades of that in this right that's all mm-hmm. yeah. agreed yeah and these are these are excellent points and this is this is something that's mission critical to human civilization it's unprecedented people aren't sure what the right answers are, what the order of operations are. And so that's where we lean on you, fellow conspiracy realists. What do you think? Uh, Do you agree with groups that advocate direct action to disrupt damage to the environment? Or are these groups with the best of intentions ultimately giving more power to the same forces they're attempting to fight? Uh, Should law enforcement be monitoring activists? And if so, uh, to what degree? Uh, We cannot wait to hear your thoughts. Uh, We try to be easy to find online. Hey, do you like social media? We got those. We are at Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Check out this video right now on YouTube if you want to. This whole podcast is in video format. Most of it broken up into pieces, probably. But it's there. You can watch our faces say things like this. Actually, no, you probably can't even see this part because <laughs> they cut it out of the video on YouTube. Ha ha ha! Joke's on me. <laughs> uh, if you don't like those, then hey, check out Instagram. We are at Conspiracy Stuff Show. Or if you want to uh, issue social media, um, throw throw a wrench in the works that is the internet uh, and, and go uh-huh. more old school, you can find us on the telephone uh, at one eight three three S T D W Y T K. You'll hear the sound of Ben's dulcet tones echoing through your ears, um, and then you can you know with the phone effect on it, uh, and then you can leave a message. Uh, three minutes is the time that is yours to do with what you will. Um, three minutes after that, it'll cut you off. You can call back again if you really need to, but uh, you know. The economy of language, I think, is an important thing. Not to mention that if you do have something that's going to take you more than three minutes to tell us, you can do so via text, um, via typing, via via words, uh, and you can send that to us via a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 